people hear the name Jesus, it can mean a whole host of different things to them. The name evokes images of everything from a divisive figure to the promised Messiah. But who did he say he was? Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich takes Peter's answer to a direct question to show us the most significant aspects of who he is and to maybe challenge our views. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, Who is Jesus? from Matthew chapter 16. Well, it's good to be in the Lord's house again this morning as we open up his word and take a walk through what he has to say to us. Uh, so as I said, we're going to be in Matthew 16, uh, read verses 13 through 17, 13 through 17. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and some others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time uh, to come to the house of the Lord this morning to worship you and to praise you and to lift your name up in praise. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to also bring our petitions to you. Uh, those burdens that we carry upon our hearts, those that we know that need prayer, need uh, your hand upon them, Lord. And Lord, we just ask now that as we step into your word, we just ask that you help us to open our hearts and our minds. Help us to be receptive to all those things that you want us to take from the word that we hear today. Help us to take the truth and let it grow within us, to grow within us, and help us to uh, grow closer to you through that, as well as and strengthen our walk with you. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here and present your word, but I just ask that you use me as your, your instrument. Just take away anything that could in any way interfere with the message, pride, selfishness, distraction. Lord, whatever it might be, just take it all away. Fill me with your spirit that I might only speak the words that you've given me today. And Lord, as a church, help us to strive to move forward. Look for answers that you and only you can provide to continue to do the work that you've uh, laid upon us <clears throat> to be faithful to your calling. And we might always be outwardly looking to satisfy needs, spiritual and physical, that you might be glorified in us doing so and others might come to know Christ as a result. And as individuals, help us to live lives that are reflective of those that follow you, that we might draw others to you, not for our honor and glory, Lord, but for yours, that they might see in us what it means to be a child of God, Lord, and help us to see opportunities, windows, doors that open to help us to share the gospel in this, these last days that we live in. And Lord, forgive us of our sins, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are looking at a passage that is actually very, very revealing, but at the same time there's a, just a hint of controversy that has come out of it over the years. And I've titled the sermon, Who is Jesus? Because effectively this is the question 
that Jesus himself was giving out there to the apostles. And fundamentally, it really is a question that each and every one of us needs to decide. Who is Jesus? The answers the apostles say others have given in our passage very, typify very often how other people might look at him. He was a good man. He was a great teacher. He was a great prophet. An example to pattern our life after. And while those statements are certainly true, they are woefully incomplete. Jesus is the final and ultimate fulfillment of three key positions within the history of Christianity. He is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is king. Notice I did not say a king, he is the king. Like a priest, he put people in touch with God. Tearing the veil down in the Holy of Holies, ripping it from top to bottom, signifying an open door that he would provide, that he was as the mediator between us and God. So he gives us access to God, not only as a, uh, a, a mediator, but also as the individual who provided us a means to be reconciled to God. Like a prophet... He reveals God to people. And like a king, he will rule supremely for all eternity. And he fulfills all three of those roles to the absolute letter. He fills them perfectly and without error and without blemish. He is also a lion and a lamb. We've heard him referred to as that. But unfortunately, like, to, to, like back then, today people will try to convince themselves of anything but the truth. And this is why the answers, if they acknowledge him at all, all describe him in a very, every sense except his truly divine position. Now what's particularly peculiar is the names that some had given indicated they believed him to be a resurrected prophet. That he had raised from the dead, somebody who had died years and years before. I want you to think about that for a second. They can believe that a long dead prophet, because they said Jeremiah or uh, Isaiah, they believe a long dead prophet can come back to life, but they can't seem to bring themselves to understand and recognize who Jesus truly was. But the question that Jesus asks is a question that has eternal implications. It's just not a run-of-the-mill casual answer. The answer to that question for you and for everybody else has eternal consequences. It affects your eternal destiny. Because how we answer this question that Jesus poses, who do you say that I am, is a question that will shape our lives, our ministries, and ultimately our ultimate eternal destiny. Now, if you look at the same event in the Gospel of Luke, we learn that Jesus posed this question after a time of solitary prayer. He had been off in prayer for some time, and then he came back and posed this question to the apostles. 
And on the surface, as we read these verses, it appears as though, uh, because of Peter's immediate response, that it would seem the question was directed at Peter. But that is not the case. It was directed at all the apostles, all who uh, were in his presence, because the who in there is plural and emphatic in the, in the original language, effectively putting the question to the apostles, but not just putting it to them, but requiring a response. The language is such that it demands a response. Just as the same question to us today demands a response. And of course Peter, we all know and love Peter. Peter is always the one that jumps in and, and speaks his mind right off the bat, oftentimes without thinking. But Peter is the de facto spokesman of the group, steps up and proclaims a fundamental truth as revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And as we read of Peter's answer here, it seems to almost leap out of the pages of the scriptures that we read. We can almost sense the monumental revelation that occurred at that moment. A radical declaration as Peter professes his perception of Jesus' true identity. Not necessarily a light bulb moment where suddenly it, it, he recognized this, but rather a significant point where he professes publicly in front of everybody who Jesus is. I can almost envision this, this great roar in heaven as Peter references Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. But what's interesting about this passage we're looking at is that in the span of just a few verses, Jesus is described from three different perspectives. And this morning, that's what I want to take a look at. I want to take a look at all three of these perspectives and the, its implications for us today. And the first one that we see is referred to as the Son of Man. Now this is interesting because this particular name is used by Jesus himself. As he's posing the question, as he begins his question, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. But note how he asks the question. Not just, who do they say I am? No. He says, who I, the Son of Man. Now, I've talked about the emphasis here before in the New Testament. How when it, Jesus, either Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, or that term is used in reference to Jesus, it's referring to and kind of pointing us towards his humanity. The fact that he's human. But this title was also used in the Old Testament to describe a prophetic vision of Daniel's. If you look at Daniel 7.13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. As I said before, this is an important distinction. Because it refers to Jesus' humanity. The fact that he came as a human. Now the Jews in this uh, verse in Daniel recognize this title as the Messiah. Meaning they see that expression there, the Son of Man. And they understand that this is synonymous with the Messiah. This is synonymous with the Messiah. So they recognize those two terms as being one and the same. 
But Jesus in the Bible is actually the one who most often uses this name for himself. In fact, he does it some 80 times throughout the New Testament. But Jesus, the Jews did not, at the day, did not like to use this title for that very reason. That Jesus did want to use it. Because it brought attention to his humanity and his submission through the sacrificial and substitutionary atonement. But what's the big deal, though? Why is it so critical that this be recognized when it comes to Jesus Christ? Why is it so important that Jesus be born a human being? While he was fully divine, meaning he was fully God, at the same time as being fully human, could he not just have come as fully divine? Could he not have just arrived on earth as God himself? Why was it necessary? Why is it significant that he came as a human being? <clears throat> well, the reasons behind the importance of his humanity can be found in Scripture, of course. And we look to Galatians 4, 5, 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made, what, under the law, that's a key phrase, under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That statement right there, under the law, is key. <clears throat> he had to subject himself to the law. And that wouldn't have been possible if he had come in a divine state. Exclusively. He could not be subject to the law if he came as God. Alone. By subjecting himself to the law, it gave him the opportunity to prove that he was the spotless lamb. He was perfect. He was without sin. He lived his entire life and never once violated the law. He would become the only human being ever to truly hold, uphold the law without exception. The next reason we find is in the, books of, the book of Leviticus. Look at Leviticus. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the what? Blood. That's a key for expression. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And we read in chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So it becomes clear that in order for, to become eternal, perfect, and final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, it was imperative that Jesus' blood be shed. Blood of the flesh as the passage in Leviticus tells us. The blood of the flesh. Now Leviticus explains to us, and once again, this would not have been possible if he had come as exclusively divine. 
And the last reason is one that is more related to the establishment and nurturing of his relationship with those who choose to follow him. By establishing his humanity, Jesus can relate to us and the struggles that we face as human beings in a way that otherwise would not have been possible. You see, Jesus went through all of the things that a normal human being would go through, through the, in the course of his lifetime. Let's take a look at Hebrews 4.15. <clears throat> it tells us, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Jesus experienced what you experience in your life. And what that does for us, it helps us to identify all the more understanding that he understands what we're dealing with. He's not some high and lofty God sitting on a throne that is never has any idea what we're dealing with and struggling as a human being. No, he's been there. Been there, done that. He experienced joy, sadness, hurt, disappointment, loss, temptation, and sin, yet remained perfect, spotless, and sinless throughout. This allows us to feel closer to him in our relationship. We can know and recognize that all of the emotions and struggles that we go through in this life, he has experienced it. He understands what we're dealing with. Praise God that, we, that he chose to come as a man. The next thing we see him identified as Christ. Now often we lose sight of this because we so often hear that term, Jesus Christ. But that's not just his name. Christ is not the Lord's name. When he went, and if he had to apply for a driver's license, it would not fill out the form, first name, Jesus, last name, Christ. That is not the case. The word Christ refers to his title, his position. And it comes from the Greek word Christos, which means literally anointed one or Messiah. So we could in fact refer to him also as Jesus Messiah, just as we refer to him as Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. So effectively, when we speak the name Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah. To fully embrace this meaning is to recognize, to understand, and to acknowledge his role in our salvation. Now, as we mentioned before, there are a lot of people that will recognize and acknowledge that Jesus was alive at one time. They'll recognize and acknowledge that he, he lived they recognize and even acknowledge perhaps that he died on the cross for his cause, for his beliefs. They'll recognize that he demonstrated what it means to live a good life. But to recognize him as Christ is pivotal. It is significant. To recognize him as your Messiah that your salvation rests upon him. That is significant. 
It's a radical departure from what commonly is thought of when people refer to Jesus. It represents that we acknowledge something, something significant, and that is that we are not good enough. The world's going to try to tell you that you're naturally good, but that flies, into the fa- flies in the face of what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us we're sinful creatures bent on rebellion against God. It also recognizes that we can't de- good, do good deeds in, to God's favor. That there is nothing that we can do to earn God's good favor. That we stand before God with empty hands, with nothing to offer. It recognizes that we are lost and that we need saving. Oftentimes people take a look at what Peter's statement was and it's, you might see it referred to at times as the great confession because it represents a public profession on his behalf or in, and the apostles of why he came to the world. But what we can't lose sight of is how we come to this realization. How do we come to this point? Well, John 6.44 shows us that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. This is what Jesus is stressing to Peter in his response. A true understanding of Christ comes not from human invention. It's not something we conjure up or we suddenly have this moment where we say, you know, that really makes sense. I think I'm going to buy into that idea. Instead, it comes from divine revelation. God draws us to him. God opens our eyes. You know, it's key that Jesus points out to Peter and says, you know, it's not some man, it's not some preacher or teacher that made you understand this critical truth. It was God utilizing the Holy Spirit that opened his eyes and allowed him to understand deep down in his heart what he was saying. Understand something. This wasn't some shallow intellectual consent. This wasn't like you you do the math and say, yeah, well, that calculates out for me. Yeah, I think that's true. It's not up here, folks. It's down here. Deep down in your heart. So many are counting as a saving understanding up here. But a heart level understanding is radically life changing. The kind of understanding that makes a person turn away from all the worldly things that they held dear for so long. All the things in this world that they called important in order to live a life that's sold out for God. They forsake the things of the world. That is the heart-changing understanding that we're talking about that comes from God drawing you to him and us acknowledging that. It's the kind of understanding that literally transforms an individual into somebody they weren't before. We see this in 2 Corinthians. Where it says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. A new creature. Old things are passed away. Passed away. 
key phrase. Behold, all things are become new. This doesn't imply that when we get saved, oh, we're going to try to be good now. No, this, this refers to somebody who is completely transformed from the inside out. That the old man is, is put away from him. And it's particularly interesting how Jesus presents this reality because notice how he addresses Peter. He uses the name Peter Barjona. And what this is, is in the, in the uh, Jewish, in the Hebrew, this means Peter, son of Jonah. When we see in the Bible, it says Peter bar Jonah or so-and-so bar something, that means Peter, son of Jonah. So here, what is happening is Jesus is contrasting Peter's worldly father. Meaning, you have a worldly father, but he's not the one who revealed this to you. It was your heavenly father that revealed it. He's saying you couldn't have come to this knowledge with worldly wisdom or even religious teaching alone, but only through the revelation of God himself. This is why we cannot even take credit for our decision to follow Christ. I mean, think about it. Sometimes I think we, on some level, kind of feel a little bit superior to somebody maybe who has not accepted Christ before. We kind of, in our mind, thinking, well, I've accepted Christ. Maybe that can get... No. We can't even take credit for that. It is Christ who has drawn us to himself. It is Christ who has revealed himself to us. We don't get any credit in any of that. It all goes to God. There's no reason to feel in any way that we are responsible for that decision. We are still sinners. We are still in need of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That has not diminished in the least. We simply acknowledged what God has revealed to us. That we need a Savior. And that role, the Christ, is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. We positively cannot take any credit whatsoever for what the gospel works in our lives and the fundamental realization of who Jesus Christ truly is. I like the way I came across this passage in a commentator or a commentary. The way he kind of framed the revelation of the truth of Jesus' identity. And, and what he did for us and impact our lives. He says, there's one thing I've learned about human beings being one for 40 years, living with other human beings for 40 years, married to another human being for 13 years, having five children who happen to be human beings, and pastoring human beings for over a dozen years. And that is that we human beings love to glory in ourselves. We love to take credit where credit is not due. But the gospel is the one thing that won't let us. The gospel makes it very clear that all that was done to bring us into an eternal saving relationship with God was not done in any way by us. We did not deserve it. We can't earn it. And we in no way contribute anything to it. We can't add to it. We can't contribute to it. All the work is complete. Jesus made it complete. He is the Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, and all glory and honor belongs to him for it. And the last name 
that we see for Jesus to help us understand who he is as the son of the living God. Now, this, this title is interesting on multiple levels because the application is both theological and biological when you think about it. First, let's look at it from a biological standpoint. Look at Luke 3.38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Okay, in describing the genealogy here, Luke was showing how through the progression of the bloodline, Adam having no earthly father could be considered a son of God. He was created by God from a biological standpoint. And having been created in his image, that would translate to Jesus as well. But this also translates in a theological standpoint. While Jesus is a part of the triune God, the Trinity, he is also equal with God. He chose to submit to the will of the Father, thus placing himself theologically in the role of the Son, the Son of God. But note how Peter includes the adjective living here. He interjects living, son of the living God, when he professes the great profession. This stresses the eternal existence and nature of God as the connection that Jesus has to him. So, ultimately, in the fulfillment of his role, agreed upon in eternity past... As our Savior, he was demonstrating his role as the Son of God as well, as through the fulfillment of the genealogical prophecy. Let's take a look at 1 John 4, 4, 14, 14 and 15. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Who you believe Jesus is determines everything about how you follow him. If you think Jesus was a good teacher, then you'll follow him like you would your favorite teacher. You may have had a teacher in school that you particularly liked that may have guided some of your decisions. As a good teacher, you like him as a good teacher. If you think Jesus was merely some, had some good ideas, then you might listen to a few of the things that he says on occasion. You'll pick and choose what you like, what you don't like. You'll follow the things that perhaps don't disagree with what your desires are. If you think Jesus was a good example, then maybe once in a while you'll say, hey, am I following his example? But if you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to rule and reign over you as Lord, that will change everything about how you live. This is what it means when we look to follow Jesus and be a part of his church. You die to self on multiple levels. You die to self-righteousness. You die to self-indulgence. And everything that belongs to you, your desires, ambitions, thoughts, possessions, and you replace all of that with that which the Lord has planned for you. You submit yourself to his will. And his plans. And all that comes along with that. Do you remember in Matthew the rich man that came to Jesus seeking eternal life? He wasn't willing to do that. He wasn't willing to walk away from all that he had. So he went away with all his worldly possessions and all that he had planned for his life. 
But he also walked away with unforgiven sin and condemnation that would plague him the rest of his life. Now I want to make a clarification. I mentioned early on that this, there was a hint of controversy in some of these, this, in this particular passage. And we need to make some clarific, makes very clear some things about what was said between Jesus and Peter. Now there are some that believe that this establishes the statement between Jesus and Peter establishes the papacy. And Peter would be the person, what they call the Pope. But this requires a clear ignorance of what a deeper study of this passage reveals to us. The Greek word here used for Peter is Petros, which means little rock. Okay, a pebble, basically. And there's a little bit of play on words here. But Jesus then states upon this rock, I will build my church, and he uses the word Petra which means a large rock, he will build his church. In essence, Jesus was, is acknowledging some sort of foundation in Peter, but by God's grace alone, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God. It is that statement that is the rock upon which he will build his church, not Peter. He's not saying, I'm going to build my church on Peter. That's ridiculous to even think that. He's saying, I'm building my church on the truth that Jesus is the very living Son of God. Which is a foundational truth of the church today. So if we look at the immediate context, we should take away from this and understand that that statement is the rock of the church. He is sent to be our Messiah, our Savior, to redeem us from our lost position before God. This is how he builds his church. When people believe and proclaim their lost position before God, and that this is a fundamental truth, and they turn away from that belief that they can in any way reconcile themselves to God or find favor through good works, that is what builds the church. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For what? By grace ye are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is foundational. We are only saved through faith. Our faith in the one who has come as our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. So today I want to leave you with the very same question that Jesus posed to Peter. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a good moral teacher to you? Is he a revolutionary who launched the longest lasting uh, religious movement in history of mankind? Is he an example to model our lives after? Or is he to you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Because when you acknowledge that revelation given to you by the Holy Spirit, you will experience a revolutionary shift in your life. If you feel the Holy Spirit working in your heart right now, maybe. If he has revealed for you the truth of who Jesus is, just as he did for Peter. Why not confess your sins before God today? Why not believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and three days later rose from the dead in victory over sin, death, and the grave? 
Once again, who do you say that Jesus is? Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne once again, we thank you for the time that we've had in your word. Lord, we thank you for the revelation that you give us, the pursuit that you have for us. We know, Lord, that left upon ourselves that we would simply uh, continue to rebel against you. We would never seek you out. But Lord, you are so loving and so long-suffering that you, you seek us. You draw us. Help our hearts to be open to the truth that only you can provide. That Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of the living God. Open hearts today, Lord. Let those that are here today or at the sound of my voice, let this truth come pouring out to them like never before. Let them fully understand their need for Jesus Christ in their lives. The transformative decision and understanding of who he is. And Lord, just have your will and way in all the lives that are represented here today or, or that are listening in some form. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and BeyondPod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space-Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await His joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at ProvidenceNBCGaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.